0: Baseball in December? Why not? We've got a hot stove league discussion and the new baseball forecaster next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt. The field, way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are World Series champions as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio, a special edition for December the 7th, either show number 36 of the 2012 season or show number 1 of 2013. Doesn't much matter, I guess. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. We will have a hot stove discussion with Ray Murphy and Harold Nichols of BaseballHQ.com, talking about all those trades and free agent signings and players moving. It's a very exciting time of year. And a little later on, Ron Chandler is here to talk about the new edition of the Baseball Forecaster. We've got trades. We've got signings. We've got the Forecaster. Hey, it might be December, but we got to talk some Baseball. And to open our show, our BaseballHQ.com Hot Stove Discussion with Ray Murphy, the Managing Director of BaseballHQ.com and Speculator Columnist, and Harold Nichols, Director of Player Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and our regular National League Analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Guys, how are you doing? Great to have you on the show.
1: Glad to be here, Patrick. Always good for a
2: little hot stove, Patrick.
0: Yes, and there's been a lot going on, but let's start with the first big trade of the offseason, which was that big blockbuster deal between Miami and Toronto. Uh, Toronto picks up Jose Reyes, John Buck, Emilio Bonifacio, and a couple of starters, Josh Johnson and Mark Burely, and gives up some young guys, uh, Henderson Alvarez, Jeff Mathis, Danny Hecheveria, and a couple of prospects. And let's start with uh, Nick what did you think of the overall deal as far as what both teams are doing, particularly Miami, because you're our National League guy?
1: Well, you know, Miami is clearly uh, is clearly going into rebuilding mode and uh, salary-saving mode uh, in that kind of a deal. So uh, it, it looks like they intend to be non-competitive this year unless something really strange happens. Uh, so that would be my, my take on it. I think the real, the real effect on Miami is on a young guy like Giancarlo Stanton who's not going to have much of a lineup around him and certainly doesn't have any prospects for signing a long-term contract, at least with this kind of approach.
0: And, Ray, what did you make of the deal, not only from Miami's point of view, but uh, from Toronto's?
2: From the Miami side, it's you know, hard to disagree with Nick. That telegraphs what they're doing, and you know, disappointing for the uh, you know Miami uh, baseball fans who just... Saw that new stadium open last year and all of that, and now they're sentenced to uh, you know, probably a couple of years of quadruple-A baseball. Up in Toronto, uh, you know, there's the fantasy impact and the real baseball impact. The fantasy impact looks like a couple of new speedsters on the AL side with Reyes and Bonifacio arriving up there. Um, but as far as improving the team in Toronto and making them more competitive, the pitching is far more important. You know, Their pitching staff just got shredded by injuries last year, and even coming into this year, it looked like they were going to have Uh, Brandon Morrow leading the rotation in 2013 and then you know a duct tape and glue operation of whoever recovered from their 2012 injuries or their 2012 massive uh, underperformance in the case of Ricky Romero so adding Burley who's a durable innings eating workhorse is obviously a big gain for them even if he's not going to perform quite as well in the AL East as he would have in the NL East and Josh Johnson doesn't come with that same durability but he's obviously a you very skilled pitcher when he 's healthy, so presumably now they get they have a nice th- top three in that rotation, even top two and a half if you discount johnson 's injury history and assume he's not going to get them you know another hundred and eighty two hundred innings you know in the worst case scenario that's a top two and a half of the rotation that's very nice and now all of the cast of thousands of injured guys plus Romero are now competing for you know two maybe three rotation spots rather than four, so you can see why. Toronto would be motivated to do that. There's a window of opportunity in the AL East, you know, with the Yankees, uh, you know, trying to string their budget in a little bit and now A-Rod being out and Jeter being injured maybe to start the year and, you know, more questions than usual in New York. Obviously, Boston blew it up and it's going to take some time to come back. You know, Tampa's still there. Baltimore was the huge surprise last year. But, you know, the pecking order in the AL East is changing and Toronto seems to be striking while the iron is hot there.
0: You mentioned that there's real baseball impacts and then there's uh... – uh, fantasy impacts let's talk about the fantasy impacts here does anybody coming into the American League in this deal meaning moving to Toronto see a big change in value from what we would have expected had they played this year with uh, with the Miami Marlins
2: I think Reyes is going to do you know Reyes things in Toronto and there's probably not a heck of a lot of impact there there might be some marginal, mar- excuse me marginal Increased risk for him just because he's now playing on turf and he's got that injury history of leg problems, uh, but we haven't seen those leg problems from him in a couple of years, so that's probably just a you know a marginal worry. Bonifacio is interesting because you know he's got that position versatility, and you know he might be the tenth guy in that team entering the season you know there he's played a lot of short and third in the last couple of years, but with Reyes and Toronto Toronto's theoretically set there. Bonifacio can swing out to the outfield, but they've got you know, a bunch of moving parts in the outfield as well. So Bonifacio might be a guy whose profit potential increases if it looks like he's starting the year without a well-defined role, but then the first injury or the first slump from any one of five or six guys could lead to him getting into the lineup. So maybe a little depression of Bonifacio's draft day value, but he should still be able to, you know, swipe his 35-40 bases once he finds his way into the lineup.
0: Nick, you mentioned in Miami that the, uh, Marlins are going to be pretty thin, which affects Giancarlo Stanton's RBIs, and uh, probably his run score maybe drops him in value a smidge. Is anybody coming into the roster from Toronto going to be worth looking at?
1: You know, I, I really don't think so in terms of this upcoming year. Um, it's one of those things where there, uh, Henderson Alvarez is a, is a guy we, we'd hope would do well last year. He had some growing pains, really a good a lot of potential. Uh, Hecheveria looks like he's going to be the shortstop. Uh, there's a guy who's going to play good defense, but not, not produce much offense. So, I really don't see anything very exciting from the uh, fantasy standpoint in terms of the guys coming
0: into the National League. And, Nick, uh, Miami then immediately moved Escobar to Tampa. And uh, Tampa is going to, uh, we presume, slot him in at shortstop there and then uh, move Ben Zobrist over to second in that second outfield uh, thing that he was playing uh, on a platoon basis. And uh, that that's an interesting move for Miami to make that slots Hecheverria, as you said, in at shortstop. It's kind of interesting that they would acquire a Cuban guy and then immediately trade him. Of course, he's got some questions about his clubhouse character and so forth. But let me ask you, do you think that um, Miami's done dealing with all of this stuff they've been doing, or are they going to get their payroll down to AAA levels?
1: No, I think they I don't think they're done dealing. I think they're looking for other things they can do. I, although I think the Escobar deal was something that was on the table from the beginning. I think they. Uh, it seemed clear initially that uh, he was not going to be the shortstop, and they were likely to move him somewhere else.
2: And they in fact did that very quickly.
0: And Ray, oh, he moves into Tampa. Is that a good get for the for the Rays?
2: You know, he was down in 2012, despite you know even with the off-field problems and attitude issues that you mentioned you know he was better in 2011 and before than last year in Toronto uh, excuse me Tampa had such a hole at shortstop that you know they ended up playing Zobrist there for a good chunk at the end of last year and that's you know suboptimal for them Zobrist you know the benefit of that is, of having him and his high skill set is that they can move him around and plug him in when they need to but you know shortstop really was a you know position of last resort for him so you know Bringing in a guy who, at the very least, comes with a decent club reputation and can you know, maybe get back to hitting for a better average with 10 or 12 homers is probably you know, most beneficial in what it does for Zoprist and how they move around addressing the other holes in their lineup.
0: And just briefly, guys, it sounds like they're talking about a James Shields for Will Myers deal. Uh, Will Myers, one of the top prospects in the game with Kansas City. If Will Myers moves over to play some outfield, that would seem to lock Zobrist in a second and move James Shields into Kansas City. Uh, Ray, uh, speaking as an American League observer, what do you make of that deal from both sides, presuming that it happens?
2: Well, from the Tampa side, you can see that they still have an outfield hole with Upton having left. So, you know, right now, if they had to field a team tomorrow, what you'd probably see is a lot of Ryan Roberts at second base and Zobrist back in right field. But they have the flexibility to, you know, bring in either another infielder to put Zobrist in right more often or, you know, go get a big bopper outfielder like a Myers or whoever else might be available and, you know, log Zobrist into second base like you were talking about. So they've got a little flexibility in how they address that one remaining spot in their lineup. Obviously, a Will Myers would be, you know, be a terrific get for them. Uh, Shields. You know, if he does get traded, you know, he's been he's getting expensive and you know, that's usually a ticket out of town in Tampa at some point, you know, as we just saw Upton Leave and a you know, a bunch of guys before him in the last few years. Uh as far as rumored destinations, Kansas City is probably a pretty good one for him. Not only is that still a good pitcher's park for him, and the, you know, the park factors moving from Tampa to Kansas City aren't going to hurt him that badly, but in fact, it's probably a net gain because of the amount of time he'll spend f- facing the rest of the AL Central rather than the AL East. So if you're a James Shields owner monitoring the Kansas City rumors, if it comes to pass, I think you're probably pretty happy about it.
1: You know, I think you have to ask a real question about Kansas City's point of view on that deal. Uh, does it make sense for them to trade a top prospect uh, a, a potentially really top bat for a guy whose value is right now uh, it, it's unlikely the Kansas City is going to compete this year so that becomes an interesting question to be interesting to see what management does about it but uh, I, I think you got to think about is it worth trading your best prospect for a guy who's going to give you something right this minute when the rest of your team may not be ready right this minute
2: it is yeah I agree with you and you know the um, you know, Shields, I forget Shields' contract off the top of my head, but he only has, I think, one more year left. And if you're trading six years of controlling Will Myers for one year, plus the possibility of extending James Shields, you better think that he's the guy who puts you over the top or gets you, you know, in into the playoffs or at very least into the hunt. And I'm not so sure that they're one pitcher away. They may very well still be more than one pitcher away. So I agree with you. They, uh, you know, that's the kind of a win-now move. Kind of implies that you think, you know, Shields is the last piece to the puzzle. And while there are a lot of puzzle pieces in Kansas City, I'm not so sure they're that close.
0: Well, Shields has 2012 through 14 club options, so it'd be two years. Okay, so it's two years. Them up at, at uh, about $11 million a year. And I, I wonder, guys, you talked about James Shields might benefit from moving into the AL Central from the AL East. The AL Central's a f- still a fairly weak division, Detroit notwithstanding, but Detroit. Looks awful, shaking in a lot of ways. I wonder if Kansas City playing for now is maybe not as uh, far fetched as we think because it's not the toughest uh, division in baseball to compete in. No, that's true.
2: And you know, if you've been as losing as long as Kansas City has, you know, if you think there's that you're even on the cusp, you know, you can appreciate the desire to jump in and take a run at it, just because they haven't taken a serious run at it since what the early '90s. So you know, you never you always want to see teams, you know pushing to win now so you know it would, be, it would be hard to criticize them if they made that move i'm just not so sure it's prudent but the you know the point you make about shields having being under their control for 2014 would help a lot too because their prospects you know are going to get better probably going to get better for 2014 and 2013 so locking up shields for those two years would you know probably have given them at least one run in 2014 if not two including 2013.
0: And they did add a couple of pitchers already, Jeremy Guthrie and uh, Irvin Santana. So maybe maybe they're making a move. Who knows? Uh, Ray, you mentioned B.J. Upton leaving Tampa. He signs in Atlanta, a big deal. Nick, uh, how does he look in Atlanta as a fantasy prospect?
1: Well, you know, B.J. Upton is one of those guys that been that's been um, frustrating in many ways to fantasy owners because he's he's got that never quite lived up to the hype. Uh, but uh, good power, good speed. The problem has always been his uh, his contact rate and his batting average. Uh, we're getting sub two fifty batting averages uh, consistently from him. and and so I think I think a change of scenery is probably good for BJ Upton. Uh, that may in fact help in terms of getting to the point where where he can get uh, at a different hitting coach, get to the point where he can get his contract rate up and get his batting average up. If he does that, uh, the guy has a, a tremendous upside. The one thing you need to watch out for, however, is that um, Atlanta has a lineup that really doesn't need to manufacture runs. And so, a real question about whether B.J. Upton would be given the green light as much as he was in Tampa.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And the other point is where Upton ends up hitting in the order is going to have a large impact on his value. If they lead him off, you know, you don't get any RBIs from the leadoff spot in the NL. And if they drop him in the middle of the order, you know, that might impact his ability, his ability to run in between, you know, Hayward and Freeman or whatever it is, too. So, you know, that's something to watch in February and March.
0: Atlanta also. Looks like they're rebuilding their pitching staff to a large extent. They waived Jared Jurgens, which was something of a surprise. Then they traded Tommy Hansen to the Angels for relief pitcher Jordan Walden. They're building quite a bullpen down there in Atlanta. Uh, What do you guys think about the fantasy prospects for any of the above, Uh, Tommy Hansen especially and Jordan Walden?
1: Uh, You know, I think that that was probably a decent move for Atlanta. Uh, Tommy Hansen had a, a struggle last season. There were real questions about his health. Uh, we have saw a drop in velocity, which is always a, uh, a concern. Um, and so I, I think what, what Atlanta did was get what they could out for Tommy Hansen uh, on the spur of the moment. Jordan Walden coming in does does one thing for them. It, it replaces that, that Chris Medlin presence in the bullpen and makes it uh, fairly certain that Medlin's going to remain in the rotation uh, as strong as he was at the end of last year. So... Uh, Atlanta's got a dynamite bullpen that just strengths it and I don't think getting Hanson out of the Atlanta rotation is gonna hurt them that much.
0: Ray, uh, the Angels besides picking up Tommy Hanson, and I'm curious what you how you think he's gonna do there, also signed Ryan Madsen as a as a bullpen replacement, presumably for Walden's slot. we do you think Madsen ends up closing? That's a different thing. And they signed Joe Blanton. Uh, give us a brief comment on the fantasy effects of all three of those uh, those pickups by the Angels. Sure,
2: I'll even throw a fourth in. They signed uh, Sean Burnett as well. And I think the calculus you're really seeing there from the Angels is that they decided they wanted to fish in the free agent market for relievers rather than starters so you know they they signed Blanton for you know the back end of the rotation but they brought in Burnett and Madsen and that freed them up to trade Walden I think because you know if you look at their rotation that you know a couple of weeks ago it was you know had some gaping holes in it they've lost Heron they've lost Irvin Santana CJ Wilson might not be ready to start the season after elbow surgery so that's uh you know all that's a lot of gap in their rotation, and it looks like they're probably not going to be able to re-sign Grinke either. So you know, as much as four-fifths of last year's rotation is now gone, and they needed to replace it, I, despite all the risks with Hanson that Nick pointed out, he was apparently just a more cost-effective or better risk-reward play via trade than anything on the free agent market that they wanted. So now they've plugged in Hanson into the rotation. They've plugged Blanton into the rotation Wilson will be back at some point. They've got Garrett Richards. They probably still need to add another starter, but at the very least, you know, even though they moved Walden, they, the bullpen is now still pretty well fortified. So they know they have got the bullpen addressed, and they're probably still fishing for, you know, a little more help in the rotation.
1: And I, you know, I agree with Ray. I think for for Los Angeles, it's a it's a, a for the Angels, it's a good risk reward kind of move. Um, the uh, uh, Hanson they, they gave up a reliever essentially, and got uh, what could be an elite starting pitcher in Tommy Hanson if his health is there and if he. Re- rebounds to where we've seen him before and he pitched very very well in september so uh, i think it's a good risk reward move for the angels
0: it's baseball hq radio patrick david with harold nichols and ray murphy from baseball and ray up there in boston i guess the papers and hot talk show radio must be buzzing with all the activity the red Sox have been undertaking of late they just signed mike napoli they signed shane victorino they had a couple of maybe we'll call them lesser signings david ross and johnny gomes ray up till last year, it looked like the Red Sox were taking a build from within approach, and now they seem to have uh, said to hell with it, and they're going to start throwing money around again. And the question is, are they throwing it around wisely?
2: Well, overarching point, I think, is that while they're throwing around a lot of money, their payroll had been cut to the nub after the big deal with the Dodgers. You know, they only coming out of the Dodger deal in August. They only had something like $45 million in committed contracts for this year. And less after that. So they had money to spend. If you look at the way they're spending the money, uh, the one thing they're shying away from so far is making any long-term commitments. Napoli and Victorino got three-year deals. Ross and Gomes, I believe, each got two. So you know, for those two years especially, they're spending money that was pretty much just burning a hole in their pocket because their revenue stream certainly supports a payroll of a heck of a lot higher than $45 million. But they haven't committed to anything you know, beyond the three years here. So, you know, I think they're retaining their longer term flexibility. Um, As far as where the guys fit, you know, I think Napoli is a pretty good fit at first base. You know, this wasn't a great year to go out and fish the first base market, but they were forced to do that after they moved Adrian Gonzalez. So Napoli ends up being a pretty decent fit there. They are not signaling that they're going to catch him much. He's going to play first base and maybe DH a little. So, you know, he'll finally get a chance to get, you know, four fifty, five hundred at bats in a year rather than, you know, the three fifty to four hundred that you get as a catcher and, you know, part time guy. So, um, from Napoli's fantasy perspective, you know, just from a playing time um increase, we would expect him to probably have uh, more value this year than we've seen from him in recent years. Uh Ross is, you know, gonna be the backup catcher. It remains to be seen who he's going to be backing up, whether it's Levan Way or Zotalamachia, uh my guess would be that Salto is going to get moved, and they're going to stick with Levar as the catcher with you know for eighty to one hundred games, and Ross playing sixty to eighty. You know, it makes more sense to sign Ross, the veteran who's got both a decent bat and a good glove reputation. If you're signing him to be a mentor to your kid, so I think that tips the Sox hand that Levar is the guy they want to stick with there. Um, Gomes, they're making some noises that he's more than a platoon guy, but I happen to think that's just posturing for the free agent market right now. I think he's well-established as a guy who hits lefties, and given his inability to do anything with one glove on his hand defensively, I think he'll be limited to playing left field at Fenway more often, where you can hide a bad defender and playing against lefties. Um, so he's probably going to just, you know, play a role similar to what he's done in recent years. The Victorino signing is the one that, strikes me as a little odd. I don't see him, uh, you know, given his age and um, the injuries he had last year, you know, he may have some rebound potential, but I don't see him as really a classic fit for Finley's right field or for this team, the way the, uh, you know, they now sort of have a lack of power and he doesn't help that. And, uh, you know, Cody retaining Cody Ross might have been a better option in right field. I, I wonder if Victorino has actually been signed in preparation for and ellsbury trade, and if they won 't you know dip back into the market and pick up a Cody Ross or go trade for a Mike Morse or you know bring in some other right handed power bat that I think this team still needs, so remains to be seen where Victorino fits, maybe they are playing it straight and he just ends up being in right field or maybe they 'll trade Ellsbury during the season, but I think it 's a signal giving Victorino three years is that one way or the other they do not want to commit to Ellsbury on the kind of deal that Scott Boras is going to be asking for for him. And that goes back to the original point about retaining flexibility and avoiding long-term contract commitments and that sort of thing. So I think Ellsbury's days in Boston are numbered whether they end next week or, worst case, if they um, you know let him play out this year and walk away as a free agent this time next year.
0: And Nick, you covered the Napoli part of the deal at BaseballHQ.com this week. Give us your overview on what the big effect is on Napoli, especially from a park standpoint.
1: Well, you know, I think Napoli, for the first thing I think that's really important about Napoli is a thing that Ray mentioned. The guy is likely to get 450 to 500 at-bats, and he's not seen that many in the course of his career. So just the extra at-bats is going to help with Napoli, and also I think moving him out from behind the plate. We've seen the last two years kind of minor aches and pains sorts of things that, that uh, wear and tear that happens with a catcher, uh, and so moving him out from behind the plate may help and help that and, and keep him in the lineup. Um so I, you know, I like Napoli in in uh, in Boston. I really do. I think he's uh, he's a good potential play, and certainly for this year, a qualified catcher. Next year, as Ray said, they may not use him there much, and who knows if he will get enough games to qualify. But uh, I think Napoli looks good. Park effect. He is going to lose some um, lose that nice Texas park. There's about a 23 percent difference in terms of home runs between uh, between Texas and and and. Uh, Boston as a home park, but Boston is neutral. Napoli's got huge power. He's not one of those guys who just barely clears the fence, so I'm not sure it'll have that much effect on him.
0: Washington signed Dan Heron, late of the Los Angeles Angels, uh, a fine pitcher, but he seems to be aging quickly and not very well. Uh, Nick, Dan Heron in Washington is he is he somebody that fantasy owners should be looking at or looking at cautiously?
1: Yeah, well, I think looking at cautiously. I mean, I think that. Um, you know, what, what you've got with Dan Heron is, is a guy who last year certainly seemed to fade, uh, fade fairly quickly. Uh, in going to Washington, Dan Heron is suddenly suddenly finds himself not at the top of rotation, but in a situation where he weighed down in that rotation. That's going to help. Uh, if you look at what happened last year with Heron, the, the skills there were really very good. If this had not been a guy that we anticipated as a sub 3.50 ERA pitcher, uh, you've got a guy with almost almost a 100 BPV as a starting pitcher. Uh, that's not bad. Uh, we'd be jumping up and down in most cases, except for our previous anticipations of Heron. So, I think what you look at at Heron is here's a guy who ought to be about a ten dollar pitcher going into uh, into a draft, and you might get twenty dollars for the value out of him.
0: In Texas, they signed uh, relief pitcher Joaquin Soria, late of the Kansas City Royals. Ray, uh, Texas has a strong bullpen historically. Uh, what does this move auger? I, I presume we're thinking uh, Joe Nathan retains the closer role. Soria then takes up some kind of setup role. That may have some effects on the rotation, though, with some of those guys in the bullpen who've been yeah, in and I out of the Yeah, and I think
2: that's exactly the reason they go for Soria. It's not so much to provide competition for Nathan. Nathan was that very good from a skills perspective last year and seems to be fully over the uh, Tommy John surgery of a couple of years ago. I think he's fairly entrenched in that job. Uh, the problem, you know, that emerged for the Rangers, you know, late last season, as you know, they suffered a slew of pitching injuries, was, you know, what to do in front of Nathan. And if you think about, you know, the guys who have traditionally been in that role, they've said Ogando's going back to the rotation this year. Feliz is out for the year with Tommy John. Uh, Mike Adams had some injury issues last year, and they probably need to see anything from him. This year, before they you know rely on him, Koji Urihara is terrific, but you know he 's uh, had some traditional elbow problems too, and they need to be careful with his workload so they you know really needed somebody that could come in there and be the uh, you know, the right-handed eighth-inning guy in front of Nathan. And, you know, Soria in his own right is no, you know, durability stud. He's going to be coming back from Tommy John surgery and it might take him a little while to, uh, you know, catch up this spring or he might be a little rocky early on. I don't think he's someone you can ink in opening day in the eighth-inning role, but they're hoping that, you know, as the season goes on, the weather warms up, that he, uh, you know, steps forward and becomes that guy. And I think that's probably his ceiling for this year, unless something catastrophic happened to Nathan.
0: And, of course, we should mention that this is Saria's second kick at the can for Tommy John, and maybe we need to ask Rick Wilton how second time through guys fare, because ordinarily the the story that we've always heard is that going through Tommy John actually strengthens your elbow. Once you get through the rehab and everything, you're as good as new or better, and then every so often a guy pops up like Saria it has to do it twice. I wonder what that augurs for the future. Uh, finally, guys, I, I did want to ask you about the Minnesota-Washington deal. This is something that's been rumored for the last... Oh, I remember them talking about it during last season. Denard Span goes to the Nationals in exchange for a prospect right-hander, Alex Meyer. He's a good prospect. Uh, Nick, let's start with you. Denard Span in Washington. Any big change as far as his fantasy value when he goes to the Nats?
1: No, I don't think so in terms of a change in value. A good pickup, I think, for the Nationals. A, a, we're looking at a guy... Uh... Should hit 270, 280, 20 stolen bases, a little bit of power, uh, a strong, strong center fielder, and and if you look at that Washington outfield now, you've got uh, you've got Jason Worth and Brian Harper in the corners, and and Spann at center field, really solid defense in the outfield, which should uh, should uh, help that Washington pitching staff again. the The question now becomes, I think you've now got a logjam in Washington in terms of outfielders. You've got Mike Morse, who's going to move to first base, but you've got Adam LaRoche, whom they might re-sign. Uh, so I think something else is going to happen. If they're able to resign LaRoche, then Mike Morse traded. So keep an eye on that
0: one. And Ray, uh, what about the effect in the Minnesota outfield? And not exactly a murderer's row out there to begin with. Span was a decent fielder and a maybe a, a so okay fantasy offensive player. Uh, where does Minnesota fill that spot?
2: Yeah, they've got a couple of options in-house that we'll be hearing more about this spring. Willingham's going to be a fixture in left field, and Ben Revere will inherit center field, where he's sort of been ticketed for that role for a couple of years now and Span's finally out of his way. Uh, Right field will become the question mark, and uh, the leading in-house option is probably Chris Parmalee, who uh, has done a lot of uh, slugging in the minors but hasn't translated that over to the majors yet, but he'll get another shot this year. And they also have the option to you know swing Ryan Doman out there a little bit depending on the health of Mauer and Morneau and how much Mauer's going to catch versus DH and how much Morneau is going to play first versus DH there may be you know some opportunities a day or two a week if both both of those guys are playing catcher and first to swing Doman out to right um, Maybe they could DH Ploof and do different things on the infield to uh, cover up the DH spot and get some better infield defense on some days. They've got some moving parts, but for the, uh, you know, pending any other move, I would say right now the beneficiary of the open spot is most primarily going to be Chris Parmalee.
0: What about uh, Joe Benson?
2: Yeah, that's another option. Uh, you know, he'll come in and compete and... uh you know, the, uh, the Twins guys on our forum seem to, uh, you know, be more excited about what Parmalee has done, you know, hitting in the minors and think he'll get the first shot. But, you know, it's one of those situations where, like you say, the Twins don't have a murderer's row, you know, in the outfield and, you know, it's going to be a, uh, you know, a competition of merit and anyone who gets hot first will have the opportunity to, uh, you know, maybe seize the, uh, you know, the, the lead role there going forward because they're, uh, you know. Pr- Especially at home for them, producing runs is always a challenge.
0: Finally, guys, before I let you go, despite all of the movement that's been going on this offseason, it has been very busy. We haven't even touched on guys like uh, Robert Andino going to Seattle, which is not that big of a deal, and Philip Humber throws a perfect game, and his reward is he ends up in Houston. Uh, Pittsburgh signs Russell Martin. But what I want to point out is that Zach Granke's still out there and Josh Hamilton is still out there. Ray, uh, you're the speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com in addition to your executive role. Uh, Speculate for us uh, really quick. Where do you think Granky goes? Where do you think uh, Josh Hamilton ends up?
2: Uh, Granky, I'm going to say the Dodgers, just because I think until further notice, we have to assume they're just throwing around money, like, uh, you know, somebody who's got a bunch of blank checks and don't, don't know what to do with them. Uh, they seem interested in Granky. You know, for granky that would be you know not a transplant since he spent the second half of the season down in Orange County. So there might be a comfort level there. Uh, if Hamilton's a tougher one to call right now. I'm going to say sticks in Texas.
0: All right, uh, and Nick, what about you? Where, where do you think uh, granky and Hamilton end up?
1: I think think that makes sense. What Ray said, I think, makes sense. I think uh, Granke might. Granke's at a point now of making a choice. We've heard it's going to happen in the next couple of days. And apparently choosing between the Dodgers and, and Texas. If I were a pitcher, I'd rather pitch for the Dodgers. Uh, just in terms of park effects, than, than to wind up in Texas. And if that happens, then I think uh, Texas has the money to retain Hamilton. And
0: uh, I'll agree with you, but I'll say this as well. I don't think Boston's out on Josh Hamilton yet, especially if they trade Ellsbury, which I think is a more of a possibility than a lot of people realize. Ray mentioned it earlier in this discussion that uh, Ellsbury... He's got Scott Boris as a as a as as an agent. Uh, the Red Sox may not be that keen on a big, long, expensive contract for this guy. There's also some questions about clubhouse chemistry and so forth. I think if they deal him, then maybe Josh Hamilton. I'm going to say my outside speculative bet would be Boston and possibly Seattle. I've been reading a lot of rumors that Seattle could be in the mix, especially if Greinke uh, goes to Texas. But I guess we'll see. That's what makes it fun. Uh, the hot stove continues to burble along and uh, we'll have to watch and wait and maybe we'll catch up with you guys again uh, once the all the action dies down. Ray Murphy, thanks very much for doing this. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks as always, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols, uh, thanks for joining us in this off-season discussion and we'll catch up with you again, I'm sure, many times before the season starts again next year.
2: Thanks a lot, Patrick.
1: It's
0: always fun. Ray Murphy is the Managing Director and Speculator Columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis and our National League Analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up next, the forecaster is here. We're going to be talking with BaseballHQ.com founder and publisher Ron Chandler. This is Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! by Wise makes a kick. What a play by Wise. Mercy. What a play by Wise. Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei. Yes. 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 History. HQ Radio. And welcome back to this special edition of Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined by Ron Chandler, the founder and publisher of BaseballHQ.com and the guy who originated the baseball forecaster, which is just on its way out to uh, happy baseball fans all around North America, probably around the world now, Ron, isn't it?
3: Oh, yeah. We, we have... Uh... Readers of the book now who uh, stretch to all corners from Japan to uh, Europe, uh, Australia. We have uh, like five or six uh, readers in Australia we ship the book out to. It's uh, Yeah, it is definitely a worldwide publication now.
0: Go back to when it first started. How long have you been publishing The Forecaster?
3: This is the 27th year that we've published the book. I um, started it back in 1986, just after the uh, Mets won their last World Series. Uh, <laughs> and at that time, uh, Bill James and several other uh, uh Authors, baseball analysts were—you know—they were the hot commodities out there on the uh, the books, sh- the bookstore shelves. And I was wondering what it would look like to take some of their different methods, <clears throat> excuse me, and and uh, put them all together in one centralized place. So I had—you know—Bill James runs created. I had Thomas Boswell's total average. I had Pete Palmer's linear weights side by side by side, by side for all the players, and uh, put together a little publication to uh, to see what it would look like. And it was just basically a folder with loose pages. Sold it for uh, $9.95. Uh, put a little ad in the Sporting News, and uh, got about a hundred people to buy it. And that's that's how the baseball forecaster started. And each year, it just kept growing bigger and bigger. More people would buy it. Um, I think the third or fourth year, we started moving more towards. Uh, a fantasy and rotisserie focus. Uh, player projections came shortly thereafter. And uh, by the middle 90s, it, it started taking on the form that uh, everybody uh, is familiar with today with the player boxes and the commentaries and whatnot. So it's it's grown quite a lot over the last uh, 27 years. So
0: at the outset, it wasn't a fantasy-specific publication at all?
3: No, not at all. It was uh, When it first started, it was strictly sabermetric It was because uh, that was the hot thing. And, and fantasy was sort of like first getting started in 86, 84 four was when the rotisserie league baseball book had come out so uh that was first kind of increasing uh awareness of of the uh of fantasy sports uh but yeah when i first started it it was just sabermetric basically
0: but did that early uh edition those and those first early editions did you also project player performance for the coming year
3: no, no. The, the play projections didn't come to like the third or fourth year, and and mostly because I had gotten a lot of response from readers asking uh, whether I could do that. And my personal background is is in was in marketing, and and actually the, the the position I had at the time was in doing sales projections. So I was taking a lot of the methodologies I was using um, for the the publishing company I was working for at the time, and applied them to uh, baseball statistics, and found that uh, they worked fairly well. So that was the beginnings of me doing player projections, and the first year I, um, I put it in the forecaster, it got a, an amazing response, and so it became a pretty uh, standard part of the book at that point.
0: And what was behind the decision to go uh, more all-in on the, on the fantasy angle rather than continuing down the Bill James, Pete Palmer path?
3: Well, mostly the the marketplace. I mean, uh, the responses I was getting, the people who were buying the book clearly were more fantasy players than sabermetrics. Uh, There was a little bit more competition on the sabermetrics side, and and considering that, uh, it was always my intent to make this a full-time job and and more of of a career for myself. Um, I'll be honest, I just went where the money was, and and, and more people who were fantasy leaguers were opening up their wallets to buy the book, so that's where the focus kind of went towards.
0: Did the Lima plan get announced in the forecaster, or did it? Uh, did you announce it somewhere else and it found its way in?
3: Uh, the Lima plan uh, evolved from uh, a strategy I tried in the 1998 Tout Wars League that was first talked about uh, on BaseballHQ.com. So it, it actually started on the website. Uh, we talked about it in general terms for a couple of years before we actually applied the the the, the moniker Lima to it. Uh, So it started really on the website, and then then, uh, it just morphed into everything else. It became a kind of a a foundation concept that uh, seeped into everything we did.
0: Now for the uh, poor fantasy baseball owner who has never bought the Forecaster or isn't familiar with it, what edge do you think it provides for the for the fantasy owner who really wants to win his league?
3: Well, I I think the baseball forecaster is is sort of like that encyclopedia you use to to do all your reports in school. It's 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 that volume that gives you the information you need to really accurately assess player performance in general. Uh, although you know it's it's funny the name is the baseball forecaster, but I think the actual forecasts are the least. Interesting part of it, I think, just the analytical tools and, and the numbers and everything uh, that, that evaluate performance and, and track the trends are a lot more interesting and, and provide a lot more insight as to uh, what players, what makes them tick. Uh, you know, we have to we have to put a number onto these these uh, these performances for a forecast. But uh, you know, the the I think it's the the overall sense of player. Uh, skill that that really is what 's important out of this book, and that gives people an idea of uh, of what these players are their tendencies are for the coming year and, and the book includes a lot of different uh, tools, a lot of different individual statistics for the players, not only their personal statistics but i mean trends about you know injuries uh, uh, disabled list days we 've got a whole minor league section. And uh, in the back of the book are a bunch of leaderboards that are a little bit different, too, than what you would normally see in other magazines and publications, in that in that we break down uh, skill into its component parts and, and look at things like not only the top power hitters for next year, But the top power hitters of those who also have uh, low contact rates or high fly ball rates and and, and break things down into different slices that are are interesting and and provide a lot of insight. So there's a lot of different things that uh, the book includes.
0: Also, every year the forecaster has uh, a lot of essays uh, near the start of the book based on some of the research uh, that was done and posted to the BaseballHQ.com website during the previous year. Uh, sort of condensed versions of some of those longer research pieces. What's on tap in that regard this year in the Baseball Forecaster 2013?
3: Uh, well, a whole bunch of stuff. We always have a couple of dozen of these essays that, uh, ab- basically, abstracts of these essays. So uh, they're quick reads, and there, there's not a lot of detail, but uh, there's enough there for you to kind of sink your teeth in. And and we answer a lot of questions this year. And I kind of I think we kind of focused more on answering questions than specific research. Just uh, kind of arcane, vanilla research-type projects. So so we answer questions like, do doubles turn into home runs? Um, does ERA regress to expected ERA during the season? Um, is there a spring training statistic that really matters? Um, we, with all the bullpen uh, stuff that went on last year, uh, we ask, how can we bet, get better control of our fantasy bullpens? Uh, a question that comes up a lot in, in uh, during March is, uh, can you really lose your draft in the first round? So so we, we answer a lot of these type of questions in, in, in the abstract section of the book.
0: You mentioned the player valuations. They do make up uh, probably, what, about half or so of the of the total content, a little less? Sure, yep. Mm-hmm. Any names jump out at you this year when you did the process that allows you to create these projections in the first place? Were any of them that jumped off the page and made you go, wow, I didn't see that coming?
3: Not really. It's you know what we've been kind of gearing towards over the last few years is to really embracing the notion that that player performance uh, is really driven by by regression and gravity during from a year to year basis. So there aren't as many huge surprises. We don't we don't uh, push the envelope or. Uh, go out on a limb with too many players in the actual projections themselves. We'll always uh, put an upside or a downside indicator for certain players. You know, for instance, uh, B.J. Upton uh, this year, we, we in the commentary, we say he has 40-40 upside. And our actual projection for him has him as a 30-30 player this year, which... Um, Although it seems like maybe out on a limit a little bit, if you take a look at his his trends, and even with the move now to Atlanta, it's not that far, you know, out of the realm of possibility. And perhaps the biggest um, the biggest very variations in, in expectation are probably for the players. Who we've had suspicions or actually proof about uh, PED usage, and we haven't. We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the possibility that we may be going into another uh, steroids era this uh, over the last few seasons, and players like uh, Melky Cabrera, Bartolo Colon, those projections fully embrace uh, what we believe to be. A a radical regression of their numbers based upon um, uh, PED use. So we will go slightly more out on the limb with those guys than than some others who uh, just just have a normal year-to-year trend.
0: You've been at this a long time, and I wonder, as a as a fantasy owner and somebody who knows his way around, how do you respond to the uh, the usage of PED, especially where it's not cut and dried, where Melky Cabrera gets caught. But there are a lot of players whose performance, shall we say, is mighty suspicious-looking given player ages and given the trajectory of their performance, not following even close the usual age-related decline patterns and so on. When you go into the draft, even if you knew that a guy was going to benefit from PEDs, do you think that's fair game to, to use as information in making your bid or making a draft round pick?
3: I think it's something that has to be part of the, the entire uh decision making process. It's something you have to tuck away. If if it's if you're on the fence about a player or it comes down between two players that are have similar skill and upside but one you have suspicions about or is in, in a situation that uh might put him more at risk, you have to take that into account. And you know, Melky Cabrera actually is a very interesting case this year because uh, if you take a look at his trends, the last two seasons were, were were far and away a lot better than what his history had shown. Yet most of the uh, the variation was in his batting average, which was driven by. Uh, an inflated uh, hit rate, batting average on balls in play. And that's a statistic that typically regresses. Now, why would all of a sudden he'd have an inflated batting average, inflated inflated uh, hit rate after so many years of having a low hit rate? I don't know. Was it PADS? PEDs? We don't know. Now, on top of that, moving him from San Francisco to, to Toronto, park effects are going to negate or at least minimize or offset uh, any... Uh, regression that we would normally expect of him coming off a PAD. So how do you evaluate him and how do you know that he's actually off the PEDs? You really don't know. I mean there's so many variables, uh, there's so much that goes into this that you really can't draw a firm conclusion. All you can really do is take these these individual pieces of information and add them to your risk tolerance level. And the more pieces of information that, that makes a player more and more risky the less likely you're going to pay full, full value for them. So, yes, maybe somebody in my league is going to draft Melky Cabrera and he's going to go 25 25 and hit 350. I mean, anything is possible. But. If you want to play the percentages, I think I would not be the one who's going, to dra- who's going to draft him at full price. I would probably draft him at 75 or 80% of his value. And if I don't get him, I don't get him. You know, it's a risk you take, but it's, it's one of these things that there's no firm answer. You just have to uh, include it in, in your entire decision making process.
0: Earlier in the show, we talked with uh, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy about some of the action that's been taking place uh, in the winter meetings and beforehand with all these big trades and stuff. And I noticed that on the Baseball HQ uh, Facebook page, you've been putting in entries every time a guy moves from one park to another, been putting in entries saying, uh, here's what we expect based on park effects. Can you maybe give us a couple of, uh, couple of names that you've applied that thinking to?
3: Uh, sure. Sure. Um, and really, these are just kind of little tidbits to tuck away. I, I don't think there's any any of the moves so far are would um, would merit people making massive changes to the evaluations of the players. And you have to remember that that projecting player performances is is, is an inexact science, and there's wide error bars about any, uh, around any of these uh, uh, changes that we're, we're showing here. But you know, like. Um, Uh, You know, Unel Escobar moving from Toronto to Tampa via Miami. I mean, he, he, you know, park effects alone would probably cost him about 10 points in his batting average. You know, Mike Napoli, everybody's saying he's going to do great in in Fenway Park, but just looking at park effects, the the change that has uh, the greater impact is not power, but batting average. You might actually increase batting average for a little bit. yeah, and even someone uh, more of a marginal player like Wilton Lopez. Now, moving to Colorado, you know that's more of something that you want to take a look at because Colorado is such a pitching park. So, you know, him moving to Colorado could cost him about a half a run in the ERA. So, those are the things we're looking at. But even still. Um, the error bars around those are fairly wide, so you, you can't really take that to the bank and really adjust your projections that much.
0: And, of course, we should remind everybody who's listening to this, go check out Baseball HQ on Facebook. It's it's pretty fun on there with a lot of comments and stuff. Uh, Ron, how best does the forecaster reader use the information in the, in the book itself to become a, a more proficient fantasy baseball player?
3: Well, I, I think... For me, anyway, since this book has been around for so long, the the meat of it, other than the the player pages, is what we call the the Fanalytic Encyclopedia, which has been growing over the last few years. It's it's almost fifty pages worth of research results and insights that really provide the the foundation of of, of analysis for how we look at players and how you should should evaluate players. So, I mean, there. There are just so many different uh, research results uh, around uh, batters and pitchers, prospects, how to look at the statistics, watching the trends, how to keep things in perspective. There's a whole gaming section that shows uh, things like how bad we are at projecting uh, first-round players each year and how we shouldn't be tied so much to average draft position rankings. Um, all of these pieces of information are things that really, for someone who's new to this game, especially, it, it's what helps build your 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 knowledge base as to how to play the game and how to uh, evaluate players. So I think that's the first place to start when you when you have this book. And once you start gaining some of that knowledge, and, and you could always refer back to it to have, if you have the book, then you can go look at the player statistics and. and you can evaluate and see if a player's contact rate's going up or his fly ball rate's going down in tandem with some other gauge. What does that really mean? And uh, quite often, since you know we, we have a very short window to put this book together in the fall, um, sometimes we miss stuff. And that's fine because our readers... Really enjoy being able to dig into the numbers themselves and uh, do their own evaluation, and they'll often see things that we either missed or kind of glossed over, and that might be more important to them in in evaluating players for the future. So, and everybody takes you know these analyses and decides which is important to them. Sometimes there are conflicting things, so you have to make a decision. Um, but there, there's so much here that. Uh, I mean, you you can't read this book in a night. This this book is really a, a volume that you keep with you all season long, and whenever you even make player moves during the season, you you refer back to it and see exactly what players are made of.
0: It's kind of like that old saying: uh, "Give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Uh, teach him how to fish, and you and you feed him for a lifetime."
3: Yeah, and that's really exactly how we uh, we try to approach the entire aspect of of playing uh, fantasy baseball uh you know it'd be very easy for you to just take this book and and read the player projections and go into your draft with them but that i mean we have actually a consumer advisory in the book that advises you not to do that because as i said earlier the projections are really the least interesting thing in the book it's everything else and it's the the, uh, the learnings and the educational part of it of seeing how uh, we do things and how you should uh, evaluate players. That's, that's the real value here, and that's that's what I think people should be looking at.
0: And part of that uh, customer advisory, which is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, uh, talks about the, f- the very important fact that all projection systems are based on calculating player rates and then multiplying them by playing time expectations. And up until the, what, the last week of spring training, we really don't know what those playing time uh, numbers are going to be. So naturally, any set of projections pretty much before that time is going to be inherently faulty because we're just guessing in a lot of instances on playing time. And that's an important fact about the uh, forecasters, that there is an online update to the projections for anybody who buys it.
3: Right, and you know, the forecaster is not intended to project playing time, uh, and we were very upfront about that. The playing time projections that are in the book are strictly as as a means for you to properly assess each player's skill, but skill and playing time uh, are two completely separate. Functions in in uh, calculating a player projection, and they have to be done separately. I mean, it's they they work separately. They the inputs to them are completely separate, and they have to be looked at separately. So, um, whereas we can project skill now, and and barring off-season injuries and whatnot, we can do a fairly decent job of of pegging what players are all about now. Um, but playing time, I mean, that's going to change all winter long, right up till opening day and, and into the season, so uh, it's, it's really a moving target, and the best you can do is just keep on top of it as best you can, and that's, that's why BaseballHQ.com is there uh, to constantly be on top of the playing time projections, and we do update that every day, uh, straight from uh, our first uh, publication of projections, which will be on December 14th, uh, we look at that every day straight through the middle of September. Um, for those people who buy the Forecaster without a subscription to the website, you can get uh, one free update to uh, the player time projections. Actually, the full set of projections at the beginning of March, so you'll get more of a, a more accurate look at how the roles shake out, um, and, and a more accurate look at uh, what the uh, 2013 season is going to look like as far as uh, statistical projections. But yeah, uh, playing time is is really. A, a, a really tough nut to crack, and we've we've done some more writing about that recently to try to find ways to uh, get a better handle on on uh, playing time because it's it's tough. And
0: before we let you go, Ron, uh, I'm sure by now so, there are going to be people listening to this show who are going to wonder how do I get a hold of one of these books? I presume you can get it off Amazon or Barnes and Noble, uh, but there's some advantages of ordering direct from baseballhq.com. Do you want to lay out the ordering?
3: Sure. Uh, just head over to baseballhq.com. There are there are little uh, images of the book on. In the right-hand column just click on that it'll give you a full description of what's in the baseball forecaster and how to order uh, you can you can get the book at a discount on some of the online booksellers but by purchasing it through us you also get the electronic files so for those of you who like to do a lot of your own analysis and, and be able to either uh, you know if you want to print uh, some of the sections of the book from PDF you can do that there are Excel versions of many of the charts so if you want to do your own uh, uh, sorting and, and, and draft guides based on the player projections um, those files are uh, available through us uh, when you purchase the book through BaseballHQ.com.
0: The baseball forecaster, I was looking at, the uh, there was a story about the fact that the forecaster is just now being mailed out to people who pre-ordered, and uh, so they're going to have it in, in plenty of time for Christmas. And there was a comment uh, it appended at the bottom of that story, and it was from a, a subscriber who just said, it's like Christmas come early every year for him, and and uh, I've been around baseball HQ a long time, and that's what it's like for me too. I just can't wait to get it, and it it's uh, you know one of the one of the big days of the year. My my early Christmas present. My birthday is about a week before Christmas, so sometimes it's actually my birthday present too. So I can heartily oh, yeah. recommend the, uh, the 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 baseball forecaster for anybody who not only wants to be good at fantasy baseball, but who wants to think about baseball itself in new and interesting ways. Uh, Ron, thanks very much for putting the forecast route for the 27th year in a row, and thanks very much for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Well, Thank you, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to be on. Thanks.
0: Ron Chandler is the founder and publisher at BaseballHQ.com and a regular contributor to our Baseball HQ Radio podcast during the season. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, our special hot stove and forecaster edition for December 7th. And just so you know, the commissioner has ruled that we called it show number 36 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Ray Murphy and Harold Nichols of BaseballHQ.com for putting together our Hot Stove segment. And thanks to Ron Chandler, the founder and publisher of BaseballHQ.com for bringing us up to date on the 2013 edition of the Baseball Forecaster. By the way, during our Hot Stove session, we talked about who might be playing center field for Minnesota now that Denard Spann has been traded. Well, it won't be Ben Revere because mere minutes after our session ended, the Twins traded Revere to Philadelphia for pitchers Vance Worley and Trevor May. The Twins say prospect Aaron Hicks will get a shot in training camp to play center, and you might consider Darren Mastroianni a contender as well. I'm Patrick Davitt. Don't forget, the first set of BaseballHQ.com player projections hit the website in about a week. And in the meantime, make sure you get a hold of that forecaster and read all the articles, especially mine. Our podcast is scheduled back in mid-January, but if the trades and signings keep piling up, we might be back again before that with the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.